Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time, a wrestler on the skids, a quick-change artist in an alley, and a girl with an eye for angles all met destruction because a hundred thousand easy bucks caught him in a stranglehold which none of them wanted to break. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Stranglehold. Sometimes men climb all over themselves for a purpose, sometimes for relaxation, and most times for no reason at all. Take professional wrestling. I watched in the ringside while two gargantuan hulks contorted their features in mock agony and bulged muscles at each other on a mat surrounded by tears of onlookers screaming through their half-chewed popcorn. While the fans, as usual, howled for blood, booed the decision, hooted the departing contestants and waited for the next comic act, laughingly called the main event. I went again over the letter I'd received two hours ago by messenger from one Manny Faber. It had included a ringside ticket to L.A. Wrestling Arena, a check for $200, and the request that I catch as much as I could stomach of the match between John, better known as Peachy King, and Jules Caesar, the Emperor of Brooklyn, after which I was to come to Faber's house for instructions that involved John Keene plus 100,000 bucks of Manny Faber's money. So I watched a little closer as something that looked like a Sherman tank in a toga and leather sandals crowned with an olive wreath lumbered into the ring and sneered at the crowd. And since I'd long ago given up wrestling as a sport, I turned to the fan next to me wearing a derby on the bridge of his nose, waved a cloud of cigar smoke aside, and got some information. Oh, Caesar? Ah, you get your money's worth out of him, all right. Hey, what about this John Keane? How does he stack up? Ah, <laughs> Peachy, you kidding? He's a bomb. Stinko, no show. Oh, oh, a bring down. Look, look, they're fixing the ring up for him now. Get this. <laughs> What's that, flowers? Yeah, yeah. Peach blossoms. <laughs> These two peach blossoms all over his corner. <laughs> hey, what stuff? Two years ago, the stuff was okay, but now it's tired. You know what I mean? Hey, he won't even put on a show, little old rat. He's still called a champ, isn't he? Champ! Him! <laughs> he won't even be a laugh anymore. He's afraid of getting his pretty nose bent. What a bum. Hey, see, he's going to him up a nut. Here he comes, look at him. Yo-ho, Pinchy! <laughs> you bum! Ah, see what I mean with that profile? He ought to be a ribbon cloak instead of a wrestler. Yeah. Hey, what's that on the back of his robe? Are you kidding? That's a big peach, of course. Embroidered in gold on black silk. How do you like... Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Go on, go Hey, look, I hear them robes cost him a thousand bucks a piece. He thinks they make them hot stuff with the dame. Maybe they do. Who's a brunette in there talking with him? How oh, should I know? There's always something like that. And I look right down. Will you make your talk so much? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, the feature event on tonight's program, a free fall, no limit contest of a wrestling in this corner at 278 pounds, the outstanding contender from the Atlantic Seaboard and Emperor of Brooklyn, Jules Caesar. Are you kidding? And in this corner at 225 pounds, the undisputed champion of the Western Hemisphere, John Pichikin. Oh, that's awesome. 
Nash got underway and Peachy started out of his corner. A good-looking brunette shouted something at him that stopped him cold. He turned to glare at her and Caesar slapped a hank on him that put Peachy flat on his back for fall number one. Three minutes later, with his head in the Gilligan, Peachy was well on his way to the mat again for fall number two, which was enough for me, so I got up to leave. The brunette, I noticed, was leaving too. And at the end of the exit tunnel, we came out side by side. You got a match? Huh? Oh, yeah, sure. Thank you. It's a mess, isn't it, huh? What's a mess? <laughs> the way things are going inside there. Uh, Peachy ought to change his line of work, don't you think? What's it to you? A laugh so far. What's it to you? You said something to him that knocked him for a loop, baby. What was it? A personal matter. Oh, how personal? Oh, about like that. <clears throat> Thank you, and step down, Philip Marlowe. And you'd better step out, too, or I'll whistle for a gendarme. <laughs> Nighty-night, nosy. <laughs> So saying, she flashed a couple of daggers at me from her snapping black eyes, spun on four-and-a-half-inch red patent leather heel, and was gone. So I drove up to Hollywoodland in the house of 2000 Beachwood Drive, where I was to meet my client, Manny Faber. The house looked like a two-room cottage from the street, but it ran for three stories down the backside of the hill. And all I did was touch the bell when the door flew open. Hey, you're Marlowe, uh -huh. am I right? Come on in, Marlowe. I'm Manny Faber, head of Faber Transcriptions Incorporated. Produce radio shows, you know. Yeah. So you saw him, eh? You saw that big, crooked, four-flushing, stupid, mat-pounding mastodon that calls himself Johnny Peach Keen, huh? Yeah, I saw him. Yeah. Oh, have a chair. Oh, thanks. Well, what do you think? You just summed it up. What's that got to do with your 100,000 bucks, Mr. Faber? You haven't seen the late editions? No. They're full of it. Peachy Keen is suing me for 100 Gs for slander. <laughs> How can you slander a guy like Peachy? It's impossible. I know that, and you know it. But does a court of law know it? No. In fact, they're going to make it stick. No, how did it happen? I'll tell you. A very sweet guy named Frank Gaynor. Yeah, I know. I'm a sports commentator. Yes, yes. He's been doing five a week on my label and going big. But three days ago, what we've been expecting for months finally happened. Rest his soul. A weak ticker. And just like that, he dropped dead on the street. Heart failure. Yeah, I read about it. Well, Frank always kept five broadcasts ahead, see? Made tape recordings in his own little studio. So I've been running his last five shows as a final tribute to him. Well, what happened? Uh, yesterday, the whole 15 minutes of his broadcast was devoted to ripping apart John Peachy Keene. Here, listen. Uh, I've got the tape here on the machine. Mm. This is one part. A blight on the sports world. And furthermore, I have proof that Get John Peachy Keene has it's sold murder. out to the highest bidder in small-time gambling circles in his last three matches. Now, I know for a fact that he has become so blatant in his underhanded dealings that even as dubious a business as professional wrestling cannot stand the strength. And officials have threatened to bar him from the ring. Strong I can stuff. show beyond a doubt that John Peachy Keen has falsified medical reports to evade tough competition, and that he eventually... Yep. Yeah. It goes on like that, Marlowe. Some of it opinion, most of it fact. And it's the facts that my lawyers tell me I've got to find the proof for or be a dead duck. That's why I asked you to come up here. I... Oh, excuse me. This sure. is probably Ruth, Frank's wife. Mm -hmm. Nice show people once. Oh, hello, Ruth. Come in, honey. Hello, Manny. I haven't been able to find a thing yet. I can't imagine where Frank got his information. I... Oh, Ruth, uh, shake hands with Mr. Marlowe. He's the detective I told you about. Uh, Mrs. Gaynor, Marlowe. How do you do, Mr. Marlowe? Glad to know you, Mrs. Gaynor. Manny, here's the key to Frank's private studio at 6122 Sunset. It might be a good place for Mr. Marlowe's start. Yes, all his files and equipment are there. Frank didn't like to work at home or at my plant on the Strip. Wanted his own private setup. Uh, we looked there, but maybe we missed something. Okay, I'll see what I can find. Oh, by the way, do either of you happen to know a good-looking brunette connected in some way with Peachy? No, 
But he's quite a ladies' man, I understand. Why, Marlowe? That's just a hunch. I saw him talking to one tonight, a fireball. May mean nothing. Well, I hope you'll be able to locate the proof of Frank's statements, Marlowe. We've got to find it for Frank. Uh, <clears throat> uh, also, it'll break my heart to pay a hundred grand to a no-good meat heaver named Peachy Keen. I promised Faber I'd keep in touch and left. I found Gaynor's little recording studio tucked into the second-floor corner of a small office building on Sunset. Unlocked the heavy soundproof door and went in. The room had a busy, cluttered look, as though Gaynor himself had just stepped out. A row of filing cabinets and a desk sat along one wall, and opposite them was the glassed-in booth with the tape recorders and microphone by which the solitary sportscaster had canned his radio programs. I dug through the files and found a folder labeled John Keene. It held only a sketchy history of the wrestler. Some publicity pictures and a few clippings, one of which rated a long second look. Because it was topped by a picture of the same brunette I'd seen at the ringside. It was captioned, Carla Bennett leaves for West Coast. I started to read the story when there was a sound at the door behind me and the lights went out. Don't move, mighty. I'll kill you on the spot if you do. Up against that window, you make a perfect target, you know. But don't try anything cute. What do you want? A little more than I'm getting, it's what. I'm entitled to it, I am. The service is rendered, you might say. I can't help you, Busty. You've come to the wrong man. Oh, but not to the wrong place, I might say. So, first things first, like I always say. Turn around, might say. Yeah, it's not... Blartel, get me? Sleepy boy. <laughs> showing up here to put this... Ooh. <clears throat> put the slug on me. Limey? Yeah. What was it? Why'd he slug you? Good questions, Faber. Hey, does the name Carla Bennett ring any bells? Carla Bennett? Yeah. No, no, I Ooh. never heard of her. I... Huh? Oh, just a minute, Marlowe. Here's Ruth. Huh? Marlowe, I remember that name. Yeah? I'm sure Frank interviewed her once. Carla Bennett used to be Mrs. John Keene. Peachy's ex-wife? Yes, I'm positive. Why, is she mixed up in this? I don't know. Limey, who slugged me, apparently took a newspaper clipping about her when he left. At least it's gone. Marlowe, this Limey, was that all he was after? Uh, he said he wanted more than he was getting. Hey, but look, paper made this call. What do you want? To tell you that he'll be out checking on a few things himself. That's all. Oh. By the way, Ruth, any idea where this Bennett dame might be found? No, I haven't, Marlowe. No. I think she was staying at some woman's hotel on Vermont Avenue when Frank interviewed her at that time. Vermont. But that was over a year ago. Maybe she's a lady of habit. I'll try it anyway. Thanks, Ruthie. There were three exclusively female hotels on Vermont. And the second one I called had a call of Bennett registered. So I went out to my car and babied my aching head down Vermont to the Victoria Plaza Ladies Only Hotel. The lobby was done in ivory and pink with desk clerk to match whom the nameplate tagged as Mr. Seymour Pratt. I started over, but stopped when I spotted about an acre of peach-colored suede coat wrapped around John Peachy Keen himself, lumbering up the stairs at the back of the lobby. Mr. Pratt saw him at the same time and darted from behind the desk like an angry canary after a rhinoceros. 
Just a minute, you. This is a ladies' hotel. So what? I got to see the one in 212. Not this way, you don't. Why, it's after midnight. If Miss Bennett wishes to come down to the lobby, that's her affair. But no men are allowed upstairs after 10 p.m. Okay, okay. How can I get in touch with her? Use the house phone, naturally. Over there in that booth. I'll go right back to the board and plug you in. I'll be with you in just a moment, sir. Ducky, I'll wait. A call for you, Miss Bennett. Good listening, huh? Now, see, here, you know perfectly well you're not supposed to come back to this desk. This is for employees only. What about eavesdropping? Is that for employees only, too? Oh, uh, why, how dare you Save it, Seymour. The guy in the booth there is a professional wrestler. If he finds out you're listening in, he'll tear your arm off and beat you to death with it. Better let me take over here. Give me the earphones. Now, wait Come a minute. Come on, give it to me. Uh, okay. Now, sit there like a good boy. Keep the key open and your trap shut. Well, no surprise. Where are you now, John? In the lobby, in the phone booth. You better come down, caller. No, no John, I'm tired. Will you call me tomorrow? No, wait a minute. Ca- what do you mean by that crack you made tonight when I was in the ring? Well, just what I said. I want a nice big slice of that 100000 you're getting from Manny Faber. Why, you're crazy. What makes you think I'd give you one lousy penny? <laughs> you will, gladly. You see, John, I know all about those visits you made to the Lyceum Theater. Bottles come back to L.A., hasn't it, darling? Why, you sneaking... Oh, shut up. After the life you led me for four years, you big ape, I'm entitled to all I can get. And that'll be plenty. So I advise you to run right back now and tell your friend that I know all about your little scheme. And talk it over good, John. I'll be waiting to hear from you. All right. I'll do just that. And you're sure going to be sorry you stuck your nose into this one, Carla. Real interesting. Are you quite, quite finished now? Yes, and you were a big, big help, Mr. Pratt. Oh, there he goes, peachy suede coat and all. So long, Seymour. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first... Horace Height and his famous Youth Opportunity Program have joined Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen, Red Skelton, Jack Benny, and the other top-ranking entertainers who make CBS Sunday nights a must. Enjoy these 30 minutes when Horace Height takes over on most of these same stations Sunday night this fall. Tune in, tune in this fall For the shows that you love best of all Listen carefully Here's the address It's CBS, CBS now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Stranglehold. When Peachy Keen slammed out of the phone booth, he was burned to a crisp. He stomped out of the woman's hotel via the back door that opened onto the parking lot. And when I got there, it was already out of sight. I stopped in the shadows to figure out which way he'd gone, but skipped that as the back door opened again. This time, it was Carla Bennett. She ran across the lot, hopped into a new green convertible, and got as far as switching on the lights before still another character pranced into the headlight beams like a veteran ham making for upstage center. Miss Bennett! Hey, Miss Bennett, wait! I gotta talk to you! I couldn't tell where the first one came from. I only heard it. It brought the little man up on his toes and arched him like a drawn bow. I saw the flash of the second one. It came from the alley and crumpled it into a pile. A moment later, a mall roared, and I ran to where I could see with a pair of taillights twisting onto the side street. It was all the good it did me. I went back to the body of the little man as Carla Bennett climbed out of her car. She was white from shock, and in the headlights, her makeup was garish. Belonged on a clown. The back alley, Harlequinade, was suddenly very grim. 
He was shot in his right in front of me. Who's the little guy, Carla? I, I don't know. I never saw him before. You know my name? Yeah. We met at the wrestling arena early at night. You remember? Marlowe, private detective. Now, come on, Carla. Let's have it. What's his name? I don't know, I tell you. Okay, we better find out fast. Let's take a look at his wallet. No! It's none of my business. I'm getting out of here. Wait a minute. He wanted to talk to you pretty badly, baby. Very likely about a hundred grand. Huh? If I were you, I'd stick around. You've got awfully big ears, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah. Better to hear phone conversations. What? This guy's an actor. He's got an equity card. Name is Seth Cameo. Mean anything? Not to me. Unless... Unless what? Unless he happens to work at the Lyceum Theater? As you said, Carla, Vaudeville's back in town, and that brings up another point you better explain. what's going on out here anyway? I thought I heard shots. You did, Pratt. They came from the alley there. Oh, so it's you again. I might have... That man. That man there on the ground. Good heavens, is... Is he dead? Yeah, he's murdered. Oh, no. Help! Help me! That jerk. I'm getting out of here. Not alone, you're not. I'm going with you. Listen, Big Ears, I can take care of myself. Will you beat it? That's not the point, sister. I still want to talk to you. Get in. I go out that way to the street, not too fast. All right. Since you're running things, where are we going? Lyceum Theater. On the way, you can tell me why your ex-husband Peachy's been hanging around there. I don't know why. Who's the friend he's been seeing? Was it Cameo? I don't know that either. Now, look, for Pete's sake, do I have to draw you a picture? A man was shot down right in front of you. Doesn't that convince you? Bucking the same opposition, baby, and believe me, this is no time to hold out. Not in this league. I'm not. All right. Well, that stuff you overheard on the phone was pure bluff. I accidentally ran into John a couple of days ago near the stage door of the Lyceum. He, well, he acted funny like he was waiting for somebody and very nervous about it. You didn't see who it was? No. I waited until three girls and two men had come out one after another, but they were cagey. I couldn't tell which one John was waiting for. Mm. And then I heard about this slander suit of his, and I figured something was screwy. You took a swing in the dark tonight and connected, huh? Good and solid. When I told him on the phone to go back to his friend, I knew he'd be just stupid enough to do it, and that's why I came out so fast. I wanted to follow him and find out who else was involved before I got in too far. You're already in too far, baby. You got more nerve than good sense, even for a hundred grand. You don't believe me? Ask Cameo. There's the theater park here. We'll walk over. Look, tell me something, Big Ears. Suppose Seth Cameo did work here. What's it going to prove? All depends on what we find to go with it. He was killed to keep him from upsetting the apple cart. One way he could have done that would be to have proof of what Frank Gaynor said in his broadcast about Peachy. Sure, but fitting a vaudeville actor at the Lyceum into that slot doesn't make sense. No, but... Yeah, there it is. Cameo's placket. We were right. Yeah. Seth Cameo, the one-man all-star cast. See Lionel Barrymore, Betty Davis, Harry Drucker... Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, and many others. Denise Glenn played in a split-second changes by the world's most versatile one-man cast. Seth Cameo. Sure, he was a mimic. A guy like that would have dialects, lots of them. So? So maybe Seth Cameo was the boy who slugged me in Gaynor's studio. He was careful to turn out the light first, and he threw that limey jive at me to toss me off the track. And what's more, he... Uh-oh, we got company. Where? There's a little geezer over there. What are you doing here? Theater's closed. Last show's been over for hours. I know. You're the night watchman. That's right. Now, you better move along, kids. No loitering around theater. Now, just a minute, Pop. This Seth Cameo, does he have a limey number in his act? Why don't you come back tomorrow and ask him? Well, that's tougher than you think, mister. How about it? Does he do a limey? Limey? Well, now, let's see. Cockney. Uh... English. No, don't think so. Might have at one time, though. Mm. Been in the business for years. Good man, too. Best quick changer i ever seen. Mm. Has he got a scrapbook or something in his dressing room, do you know? Yes, he has. Got a box there with every bill he's ever played on in it. Most actors do. But the theater's all closed now, fella. Well, you've got a key, haven't you? Look, Pop, it's important. We've got to find out right away. No, I'm sorry, sonny. Can't do it. Look, I... 
It's real important. Take a good look. Very important. Ten bucks. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess it wouldn't do any harm if you just want to look. The old man slid the ten into his pocket like he wouldn't admit it even to himself. And led us in the stage door down the stairs and with his flashlight along the dark hallway to Seth Cameo's dressing room. He unlocked it, reached in, and turned on a tired little lamp and pointed out a box on a trunk near the back. We picked our way over to it through a jumble of costumes that had been period pieces at the turn of the century. The box was lined with sentimental posters. And inside was a man's life in stacks of programs and playbills. It began with a crisp current appearance and then ran back through all of Seth Cameo's dusty yesterdays. Didn't take long. Maybe five minutes. Here. This is it, Marlowe. Exactly what you're after. Let's see that. Parthenon Theatre, Kansas City, September 1940. Seth Cameo of London in Piccadilly Circus, His Majesty Navy Limehouse. Sure! This is it, baby. Seth Cameo and Limey were one and the same. And where does that get you? Yeah, it gives me an idea. It gives me one, too. You found what you wanted. Now, let's put everything back like it was and get out of here. In a minute, Pop. I want to check something else. Now, look, honey. This is dead against all rules. I'm getting jittery. Wait a minute. Two... Hold it. I heard something upstairs. Did you lock the outside door, Pop? Oh, come now, fella. Be a sport. That's an old stunt that oh. just won't work. That door's got a snap latch. Shut up. And... I heard it, too, that time. There is somebody up there. Huh? Yeah, you're right. Dad, blame it. I was afraid of something like this. Now, 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 look, you two. You stay right here and don't touch nothing till I get back. You hear? I'll go see what it was. Better switch off the lights, Carla. The brakes are going against us. What do you mean? Well, it, all this after-hours theater business can't be coincidence. Well, they came in upstairs. There's trouble on his mind. Oh. You ask for a payoff, baby, and that's what you're going to get. Only the bank won't handle it. The morgue will. Hey, you. You're the night watchman around here. Oh, Marlo, it's John. Right. Yeah, but you keen. No pun intended. The girl that's in here. I want to see her. Oh, no. Take it easy. Here. Now you go on. Get out. Don't lie to me, Grandpa. Our car is parked across the street. No, Keep quiet. I thought she could be. Now, where is she? Come on, I mean business. Now, listen here. Don't you give me none of your sass, son. You just clear out there. Oh, you got the watchman. You better clear out, Carly. He'll be down here in another minute. Now, look, go up that way and cross the stage. Go to 2000 Beechwood. It's the one place Peachy won't go. Manny favors. And stay there till I call, you understand? Never mind. Beat it, will you? Go on. Be careful, big ears. When Carla moved off into the darkness, I saw at the other end of the hall the inquisitive beam from the flashlight poking into dark corners as Keen eased down the stairs. I got my gun into my hand, plastered my shoulders against the wall beside the open door, and waited. Didn't have long to wait. I heard him stop in the hall outside, and then the beam of the flashlight crept over the floor and up to the wall, and then slowly, carefully circled the door frame. Carla? I heard him moving closer. Then the barrel of a snub-nosed revolver inched into the room. I know you're in here, Carla. I waited until I could see the big fist wrapped around the gun. And I brought my 38 down. His gun flew to the floor and I swung again for his head. Why you? The rest will only blink and lunge for me. I'll kill you. Not tonight, Peachy. I may need it. I'll get my hands on you. That's your problem, big man. Fall down, will you? I'll get you. Go down and stay down. Shut that guy down like a tree. It had been short but vicious. In one punch he'd landed, it shaken me to my shoelaces. 
The wreckage of costumes, props, and a lifetime of old theater programs was scattered over the room like big moldy snowflakes in a crazy ankle-high glare from the still-burning flashlight. As I sagged down onto a trunk to catch my breath, I saw something that brought me right back to my feet again. An illustrated program from the King's Theater in Buffalo that gave me a new slant on the whole mess. It billed Seth Cameo as the man with a thousand voices, the perfect mimic. And the act that had followed him for a 30-week run was a girl whose face I knew well. I ran out of the theater into the nearest cab stand where I sent one driver to get the police over to the theater and with another, I headed for Manny Faber's place on Beechwood and what I was positive would be another murder. When I got to the front door, I knew there was no need to hurry. It was all over. Come on in, Marla. I've got news for you. It was Carla with a gun in her hand. And on the floor in the corner, her face tight with pain, was Mrs. Ruth Gaynor glaring hate up at me like a wounded panther. There she is, Marla. I recognized her as soon as I saw her. She's the one Peachy was waiting for outside the Lyceum Theater. They've been working together all this time to frame that slander suit against Faber. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I didn't expect to find you like this. What happened? She knew I recognized her and pulled this gun on me. The one she used on Seth Cameo, no doubt, huh? Uh-huh. She was going to use it on me, too but I was way ahead of her. She's only in love with John Peachy Keen, but I was married to him for four years, and you don't live with a professional wrestler that long without picking up a few tricks. They call you the weaker sex. <laughs> what is it, Ruthie? Your elbow, is it broken? Let me alone, you two-bit flatfoot. I'll call a doctor and get you fixed up. For one reason only, I don't even like to see a black widow spider suffer. Coffee, Miss Bennett? No, thank you, Mr. Faber. Well, I don't blame you. I've got no appetite either. You know, Marlowe, I always liked Ruth. And I thought she liked me. As long as you represented a buck, she did. And I've got to admit that she and the wrestler were clever, though. That stunt almost worked. She was clever. John Keene is 225 pounds of solid jerk. Yeah, <laughs> it was all her idea. She was in love with Peachy, and when Frank died, she saw a great opportunity. Especially with that mimic being in town. Sure, Seth Cameo is an old friend of hers. She and Peachy wrote a highly slanderous script. She got Cameo to record it on Frank's machine, imitating Frank's delivery. Yes, and I broadcast it and stabbed myself in the back. Exactly. And we'd never found out any of this if a couple of other characters hadn't tried to cut in. First, Cameo, who felt he'd been cheated when he learned the job he'd done was worth a hundred grand. Ruth had to shoot him to keep him quiet. Second, little Carla here. Hey, Marlo, please. With me, it was just good, healthy spite. Spite, huh? <laughs> What's stronger, baby, spite or dough? Well. See what I mean? Good night, Mr. Faber. Good night. Come on, Carla, let's go. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. We didn't go home directly. We went on our Beechwood Drive high into the Hollywood Hills and parked where we could look out over the sparkling, sprawling city. And then we talked about color, her life, relative values, the city below us, and the dark hills above. 
And then, as we watched the first faint glimmer of dawn rise in the east, we both realized something. Not original, not very complex, and certainly not sophisticated, but very gratifying. In the final analysis, the best things in life, we both agreed, are still free. Know what I mean? Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Ted Von Eltz, Charlotte Lawrence, Barney Phillips, Tony Barrett, Peter Leeds, and Junius Matthews. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Oran. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... I didn't know it, but I was caught in a smokeout that led from a search for a lady in black, past murder at a highway inn, to gunfire in a crumbling warehouse. And all for a girl, already dead in the morgue. This fall, you hear them all on CBS. Red Skelton and Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen have joined the parade to CBS on Sunday evenings. And be sure to hear the contented hour with Dinah Shore tomorrow and every Sunday over most of these same CBS stations. This fall, you hear them all on CBS. This is Paul Masterson speaking. Now stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. And those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. It started with death on my doorstep and got worse when I lied to a sympathetic bull was pistol-whipped by a gorilla with dimples, and fought with a kitten on the keys. And it might have gone on that way all night if I hadn't been helped by the king of the beasts. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The August Lion. one of those in-between hours, along about ten on a night at home when you don't quite know what to do with yourself. Then all of a sudden it's eleven, and then eleven-thirty. 
And you're in slippers and a robe and have done nothing. <laughs> Which is exactly where I was. Except that I'd already decided on one, and only one, very dry martini, a quiet cigarette, and bed. When it came loud, insistent, and unwelcome. No improvement when I opened up and saw less than five hey. feet of excited cab hey. driver jumping up hey, and down. Mister, you Doc Marlowe? Yeah, I'm Doc... Doc Marlowe. That's right. Here he comes with a doc. You better make room. Is the sofa there okay? I'll clear it off. Oh, wait a minute, Jack. Who comes? Who? Okay, mister. Bring her on in. The doc's here, all right. Hey, doctor, she's stiff. She's out like a light. Who? The babe. Who do you think? Sure too bad some people can't drink. Huh, doc? Yeah, it's real tough. Now, tell me, do you... Hello, Phil. Judson Angel. I'm sorry to bust in on you this way. Is the sofa all right? No, it's stuffed with granite. Put her in the bedroom. Okay, will you take care of the driver, please? Yeah, yeah. How much, friend? Well, uh, only 80 cents on a meter, doc. A couple of bucks ought to cover it here. Good night. Good night, Diamond Jim. Well, Phil, I guess I'd better explain all this. Uh Uh-huh. Here, I haven't seen you in six months, and when I do... Never mind around... the details, Judd Boy. Let's talk about the problem. Who's the girl? Her name's Voss. Eileen Voss. She's kind of a stockbroker. Maybe speculator's a better term. You know, takes big chances with other people's money. I was in love with her, Phil, until tonight. When what happened? When I found out I was just one of many, it, it threw me, Phil. I really lost my temper. I swore I'd kill her on sight. Yeah, most guys do at a time like that, Judd. What's that got to do with her being drunk? By the way, while we're talking, I'll put on some coffee. No. No, don't, Phil. Why not? Because it can't help. She had a shot too many, all right. Only this one's a bullet in her head. She's dead. Oh, fine. Now, Phil, listen, please. You've got to help me. I've got to find out who did it. Phil, it started a couple of hours ago when I found out she'd been playing me for a sucker. I went to her place the first time in a week, boiling mad. The door was open. Judson's angel's eyes never left my face as he told the story from the beginning. The girl's body on the couch when he walked in, a neat hole in the back of her head. The gun he knew she owned shoved under a pillow. Then in the next second, before he could even look in the other rooms, the arrival of the cabbie somebody'd called who thought Eileen was just another drunk who had to be shown the way to go home. How he seized on that as an opportunity to keep from being placed at the scene of the murder he had every reason to commit. How minutes after he was in the cab, he realized he was near my place. How to avoid suspicion, he said I was a doctor. Everything except why, specifically, he was so afraid of the police. I knew that was going to be next. Now, Phil, I suppose you want to know why I couldn't... couldn't possibly call the police. Yeah, that's right. Why? Because I'd surely be booked and fingerprinted. And that had ruined me. You see, a long time ago, I served time in the state penitentiary in Illinois. What? Yes, yes. So I've kept it quiet. Only Phoebe Hammond in my office knows. It was for forgery, Phil. It was under another name and way back when I didn't know the difference between clever business and crooked business. Mm. It's taken ten years to work up my reputation as an accountant. So you see, if I get mixed up in this, it'll all come out and... Well, smash, lots of pieces, no more. Oh, you've got to help me, Phil. You've got to find the real killer before the police get to me. Please, Phil. I can't, Judd. They'd be smashing just as many little pieces for me, too, if I tried to pull anything like this on homicide. No, I'm sorry, Judd. I've got to report this body. But, Phil, look. What if you do report the body, but you say that you don't know anything about it, that you're going out to find what you can? What about that, Phil? Oh, please. Please, Phil. Okay. What's the girl's address? 91 Hollycrest Drive. 91 Hollycrest. Yeah, the, the door wasn't locked, Phil. Mm-hmm. Your phone number, Judd? Gladstone 3926. 3926. I won't move out of my place until I hear from you. Now, make sure you don't, Judd. Because if I can't find the real killer, I've got to tell what I know about you. You understand that, don't you? <laughs> 
When Angel left, I called Detective Lieutenant Matthews at police headquarters and lied that there was a corpse in my apartment about which I knew nothing, and that I was on my way out to see what I could find. Then I hung up fast, not feeling very good. Twenty minutes later, when I was in the plush living room at 91 Hollycrest Drive, I had zero to go on. Until I got to the bedroom where, caught in the folds of lace at the bottom of a petticoated vanity, I found a piece of male jewelry that stood out against that backdrop like argyle socks on a turtle. It was a gold tie clasp ornamented with the figure of a lion, a little more majestic than most. I dropped it into my pocket and then moved out into a long hall that led to the kitchen. I was about to start toward it when he spoke. Don't move, buddy. Like the voice, he was thick and soft, especially in the middle where he was girdled in double-breasted gray flannel. So I couldn't tell whether he was plus or minus a tie clasp. Also, he had no hair and a pair of deep dimples that danced when he talked. A gun in his hand, didn't it? Okay, turn around. Let's go back to the living room, buddy. I want to ask you a few questions. Like why you're taking inventory here. Well, it's my job. You see, I'm an auctioneer. The lady of the house won't need this stuff anymore. She's not going to... Shut up. Now stop where you are. And don't turn around. Okay, where's the girl? Come on, come on, where is she? Out. And only if you'll tell me why you want to know will I tell you where. You see, that way I come out even. Yeah, maybe. Lyleen Voss owes me money, buddy, and I want it now before she's flat broke. Now you, where is she? On her way to the morgue. Like you don't know. Well, what do you mean by that? I didn't kill her? Honest, Injun. Listen, you. Get this straight. I came into this place just now for one reason only. To check on the Voss girl and make sure she wasn't on her way out of town, bag and baggage in hand, and my 50 grand. Now, don't forget that. I'll try not to. And don't move. Hello. Uh, no. No, she's not here. She is... Judy? Yeah. Yeah, it's me, honey. No, no, she's, um... She's out. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you about it later at, at, at the club. Yeah. Right, Judy. So long. Now, where were we, buddy? In the middle of a big fat lie, your reason for being here. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's where we were. And you know, that's a good old place to leave it. Ah! Oh, buddy. Twin telephones, lamps, and end tables next to me got back to being one of each again. I saw the note next to the phone that said, Call Monday at the garden room. Which didn't add to much until I realized that Monday was spelled not as the day in the week, but M-U-N-D-Y. And I recalled that the garden room was a cozy collection of crepe paper flowers where some people did their serious drinking. That plus dancing dimples telling a girl named Judy who had called for Eileen in the first place that he'd meet her at the club was a little better than the zero-plus tie clasp I'd been working with. And a half hour later, that little became a lot and things started to dovetail because a placard under glass in front of the garden room bragged about the glamour pianist featured inside, whose name was first Judy, second Monday, not his day in the week. I blessed my good luck, exchanged smiles only with a hat check girl in the lobby, and found a table for one inside, not more than a half a dozen octaves away from Miss Monday's left hand. I'd ordered a drink and had a cigarette going before she paid any attention to me. I'll play anything you want. It's a rule of a house. Just name it, or hum it, or whistle. But don't croon. That's also a rule of the house. What'll it be? 
How about the number you always play for that fat friend of yours? You know, the one with the deep dimples? Burlaffy? Hmm. <laughs> sure. Kind of corny. Remember it? Yeah. You a friend of his? Not exactly. I didn't think so. He'd crown you if he heard you say dimples. He's sensitive. You're new here, aren't you? I've been in once or twice. Mutual friend of ours used to speak well of you. Eileen Voss. But made her change her mind. She was murdered tonight. Any idea who did it? I said any... I heard you. No, mister, I haven't got the slightest idea. There, that's the end of your request. Sorry, but I'm only allowed one to a customer. It's a rule of the house, I know, yeah. I'll see you, Judy. This is Marlowe, Angel. Oh, oh, Phil. Where are you? What have you found out? In that order, I'm in a phone booth at a club called The Garden Room. What I've found out so far won't impress Detective Lieutenant Matthews of the Homicide Squad at all when next we meet. But nothing in the apartment? No lead of any kind? I'm not sure, Judd. I ran into a round man with a sleek gun who piled me up and left before very much was said. But, Phil, The Garden Room, the girl there's a friend of Eileen's. Talk to her. Yeah, yeah, I already did, Judd. Got me the round man's name and no more. It was Berleffi. You mean anything? Yeah. A fat guy with dimples and no hair? That's right. He claimed Eileen had 50 grand that belonged to him. Yeah, that must be him then, Phil. Oh? Yes, he's a gray marketeer. Comes from San Francisco. I've never seen him, but the girl in my office, Phoebe Hammond, can help us. Mm-hmm. She once did some auditing work for Berta before she found out how crooked he was. She told me about him. I'll call her and have her meet you there, Phil. All right. But look, I'll be at a corner table facing the door and tell her to hurry, will you? I'll call you back later. Goodbye. Exactly one o'clock when what was at least three parts CPA to each part woman pushed the front door out of her way and entered. At the top, there was close-cropped hair, streaked with some gray, no hat. At the bottom, dark brown stockings running into darker brown shoes, no heels. In between, severely tailored tweed closed tight at the neckline. It took all of 15 efficient seconds to decide that I was her man. And less than that again to introduce herself, ask for a cigarette, and name her drink. When it was my turn to talk, I brought her up to date. Eileen Voss's murder included. It's too bad, Marlowe. Judd's a great guy. Yeah. It was only lunch today that he was knocking himself out, trying to figure what would be four over my birthday next week. <laughs> now this. Tell me, what can I do to help? Well, at the moment, Burleffi. All I know about him, Miss Hammond, aside from what I've told you, he said at Eileen's, is that he and Judy Monday are a team. And Judy was a friend of Eileen. <laughs> How cozy. Isn't it? Well, it goes like this. Berleffi's front name is Steve, and he's out of San Francisco via Detroit and Chicago. And in each case, only a length of the subpoena ahead of the law. Oh? Back in the 30s, he was a mobster. The numbers game, protection racket, that kind of stuff. But after the war, he cashed in all his chips and went into a more or less legitimate business. With, of course, absolutely no change in tactics. Know what you mean. Now, look, can you tell me where he lives? No. But I'll bet my bottom dollar that the kitten on the keys here can. Mm. Only be careful. Berleffi has a reputation for shooting first and talking later. I only hope he isn't after Judd, too. You know, there might be some connection between them that goes back to the days when Judd was Francis Lyon and Berleffi... Phoebe, did you just say Francis Lyon? That's right. L-Y-O-N. Uh-huh. Judson Angel is the name he took when he came out here. 
Why? What does that mean? I don't know. Here, look at this tie clasp. Oh? The ornament. It's also a lion. I found it in the bedroom at Eileen's place, and yet Judd told me that he hadn't gone past the living room. But, but Marlowe, that doesn't prove that Judd lied. Why, it might not be his at all. Hmm. Have you ever seen it before? No, I haven't. Besides, I never knew Judd to wear a tie clasp. Okay. Could belong to Berleffi. But it's still worth checking after we get Judd out of his apartment. Look, where's your place, Phoebe? Mulholland Drive, 361 North. 361. About a mile up into the hills. I'll let you do the trick. Honey, you go home and stay close to the fireside. I'll get a hold of Judd and tell him to get over there fast. And then maybe we... We can... Maybe we can what? What is it, Marlon? Outside, Phoebe. It's a man coming this way. Berleffi? Worse. Goodbye, baby. I'll see you later at your place. I've been afraid of this all night. But who is it? What's his name? Detective Lieutenant Matthews. He's a police officer, Phoebe. First, last, and always. So long. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first... Music you like best of all, whether it's classical favorites or popular old ballads, is the music you hear when you tune in Sunday afternoon to the Symphonette and the Choral Ears. This Sunday, the Symphonette plays popular operatic pieces and has as guest Milton Kay, pianist, who will play the final movement from Rachmaninoff's Concerto No. 2 in C minor. The male choir and Lenny Stokes, featured baritone of the chorus, will bring you Pale Moon, the Wizard of Oz, Alice Blue Gown, Make Believe, and other favorites. Yes, it's the music you like when you tune in the Symphonette and the Choral Ears every Sunday over most of these same CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The August Lion. I left Phoebe Hammond at the table and moved toward the bar. My first impulse was run, do not walk. This is a different kind of an emergency. But a quick glance into the mirror behind me tagged that as suicide and pushed try nonchalance into its place because I could see that Detective Lieutenant Matthews had already spotted me. When he was closer, I could also see that nonchalance would go over like uh, punching him in the nose on the steps of City Hall. All right, Phil, that little game is over. Now let's have it straight and fast. Who are you working for? And don't bother with the pitch on professional ethics, so we'll try this all over again down at headquarters. His name, what is it, Phil? Judson Angel, he's a friend. Yeah. Who is what to the corpse? He was in love with her, but he didn't kill her. Oh. Now, look, Matthews, I've never held out on you before, have I? Which means you want to start now, huh? What are you getting at, Phil? My client's in a jam, Lieutenant. He didn't kill the girl, but unless I can find out who did, he's an eyebrow deep in a mess that doesn't even concern him. Which has what to do with you playing bashful tipster on the phone with the body being in your bedroom and Marlowe starring like a one-man police force? Will you listen? Come I... on, Phil. I've been an hour and a half just finding you. Now, level. Why is this Judson Angel in a jam if he didn't do it? Okay, okay. We'll try it honestly. 
He once did time in another state, under another name, way back when he had less sense. Ah. If he's booked and fingerprinted, it'll be splashed all over the papers. He'll be ruined. Why? What's his business? Well, today it's accountancy, and then it was forgery. You can see that side by side, they don't make a very handsome couple. Now, come on, Matthews, give the guy a break. Will you take my word? He deserves it. What do you want me to do? Give me some time. If I don't have the answers, I'm out of luck, and so is Judson Angel. Please, Matthews. All right, all right, Phil, all right. Sixty minutes. Uh, And if I don't hear from you by ten after two, we start all over again, down on headquarters, your client included. I'll be waiting for your call, Phil. Good night. Detective Lieutenant Matthews was nobody's keystone cop, and I knew that when he said 60, count him 60 minutes, he meant just that and no more. So I found a nice and public phone booth at a gas station across the street, and while I kept one eye out for Berlethi and Associates, I dialed Judson Angel's number. But in the next second, when I was through to him, I knew that I could forget about Berlethi on my end. Phil, I'm in trouble here. Outside, a man and woman. They're coming up the walk now. He's fat and gray flannel? Yes, yes. She just pulled up in a cab, but he's been out there 20 minutes watching the place. Berlethi, listen, Judd, get out the back way. Get over to Phoebe's place. Oh, he's out the door now, Phil. He's kicking it in. Phil, Phil, get up here. 21 South Orange Lane. Judd, do as I say, will you? Get out. Get to Phoebe's place on Mulholland Drive. I'll see you there. Hurry. All right, Marlo. All right. Marlo, he's in. Judd. Put that phone down, Angel, or I'll kill you. Now. I screeched to a stop at number 21 South Orange Lane, which was lights out, front door open, and no car parked in sight. I went inside. Just visible in the moonlight was the huddled figure I'd been afraid I'd find. What I didn't know until I was nearly next to it was that it was Judy Mundy, not my client, and only unconscious, not dead. There was a large white envelope lying next to her, and beyond that, a litter of broken porcelain that had once been a lamp. I switched on a light, found some brandy, and then brought her to as fast as I could. Marlowe. Yeah, and with a brand new request... Here, take a drink. Huh. Now, I'll ask the questions. One, what happened here with the three of you? Where's Berleffi and, more important, Judd Angel? Come on, baby, talk fast. All right. I think Angel got away. I don't know where he is. Berleffi? Dead, I hope. I got him to thank for that lamp getting together with my head. How come? Angel made a break for it, kicked out the lights and tossed the lamp at the same time. Hero Berleffi used me for a shield, then took off after him. Mm. Your connection with both Berleffi and Eileen Voss, what was it? I forget. Come on, Judy, baby, talk. You're not going to get another chance this side of the witness box. Witness Witness box? What for? Your girlfriend's murder, trial by jury, an old Yankee tradition, you remember? I didn't have anything to do with Eileen getting killed. They can't tie that onto me. They can try. Now, what'll it be? It'll be... It'll be what you want. That's better. I only got chummy with Eileen in the last month, Marlowe, because Berleffi told me to. He was my boyfriend. Hooray for love. Go on. What was in it for Berleffi? He wanted to know where Eileen got her tips on the market. That way he could keep paying her any commission. Figures. What went wrong? Nothing. Only instead of finding out how well she knew who, I discovered she was going broke, period. The rest of it, you, Eileen, being dead, that muscle woman you talked to in the bar, all Wait a minute. Music... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about that girl in the bar? You two get together? Oh, not for very long. Hmm. After you left the table, she went outside, so I followed. Why? Because the cow jumped over the moon. Why do you think? I was still working for Berleffi, remember? I thought it would help if he knew where she fit in. What'd it get you? A slap in the face. It said she was raised on barbells. And this envelope here that fell out of her pocket. Oh? Don't get excited about it. It's only one of those horoscope charts. What do you do? Collect them as a hobby? When there are notes on the back, yeah. However, for a friend, Berleffi was unimpressed. Yeah, look yourself. It's double talk. Mm. 
cost plus plus 10%. 90 days, will you listen? Yeah, it's strictly a CPA's margin notes. Doesn't mean it, you... Molly, your mouth's open. What is it? You look dumb. Dumb I am and have been all night. Sweetheart, in your own clumsy way, you may have saved Judson Angel's life. What are you talking about, Marla? According to this horoscope, it's written in the stars. Maybe I'll make a good cop happy. Goodbye, sweets. Holland Drive is a fancy collection of hairpin turns and deceptive curves along the top of a mountain that separates Hollywood and Beverly Hills from the San Fernando Valley. But when I was on it and burning up good rubber at each bend as I headed for number 361 North, gas pedal on the floor, driving conditions were the least of my worries. And it wasn't until I had parked away from the bungalow that perched on the edge of a cliff and was out of my car, 38 in hand and close to a half-open French window, that I breathed a long, long sigh of relief. Because then I could clearly see that Judson Angel was still alive. I swallowed the sigh fast when I could also see Angel's face. It said there was nothing permanent about his good health. Because on the other side of the room, and only visible to me via a corner mirror, was the reason why. Holding on tight to a short, ugly revolver was the one the horoscope had said could be Eileen Voss's killer. The CPA known as Phoebe Hammond. While she talked, I moved around to where I'd be able to take aim in one straight line. I didn't want to kill Eileen in the first place. It was an accident. I don't believe you. It doesn't matter now. You see, I'd invested some money with her, Judd. Money that wasn't mine. When I found out she was going broke, I went up to see her and demanded it back. She laughed at me. I got mad. I hit her. She took out a gun and said she'd call the police if I didn't leave. I grabbed it away from her. Then I shot her. Then you were there when I came in? Yes. When I saw you and that cab driver she'd called earlier take the body, I, I didn't know what to do. Until later, when I met with Marlowe on your behalf and learned all about Berleffi and the tie clasp he'd found. The tie clasp with the lion on it that you'd recognize as mine if Marlowe ever got the chance to show it to you. But he won't, Judd. I can't let him. Phoebe, Phoebe, you're crazy. You're crazy. You'll never get away with it. Oh, this. yes, I will, Judd. It'll be Berleffi they'll blame. He entered your room with a gun in his hand. I know. I saw him and that girl. Also, Judd, I'm the reason you got away from him. I rammed into his car when he started after you. It's too bad, Judd. Worse than that, Phoebe, it's a crying shame. Marlo! Lights! The lights! Stop, Phil! She can see your silhouette! I can follow her footsteps. We're even. Phil, the terrace. She's trying to get away. There she is outside. She tripped, Phil. The rail! Phil, it's a, it's a good 200 feet down to solid rock. Yeah. Come on away from it, Judd. Time we made a phone call. It was four o'clock in the morning. We were still on top of the mountain before the police had found the broken body of Phoebe Hammond. Berleffi had been picked up, and in lieu of anything better, booked for breaking and entering Eileen Voss's place. When the parade of law, press, and just curious who always show up at the scene of a murder had finally left, that made it just me and Judd and a cop named Matthews. Well, let me see if I got this straight for the records, Phil. 
First, you thought it was a tough called Berleffi. And second, you were afraid you'd been a sucker and it was really your client. And finally, you figured it had to be a woman who all the way looked like she was no more than along for the ride. Huh? What? You mean you really believe I could have done it, Phil? Well, yeah, it looked that way for a while, Judd. You know, you said you hadn't been past the living room up at Eileen's, and yet I found a tie clasp in the bedroom there ornamented with a lion. And then I found out your real name was also lion. It almost added. Yeah, but since you didn't have a chance to find out whether or not Berleffi was missing a tie clasp, you still considered that was only circumstantial evidence, am I right? Right, yeah. Until yeah. I ran into the switch, which was an envelope that had belonged to Phoebe Hammond. There was a horoscope chart inside. Which meant what? Well, it only meant that she went in for that stuff no more until I remembered her mentioning that her birthday was next week, which is early August. And that, no doubt, puts her under the sign of the Zodiac run by one Leo the Lion. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes, and the mannish tight-necked suit she always wore could have meant a shirt and tie underneath, minus clasp. Exactly, gentlemen. <laughs> That's it. Uh, <clears throat> now, me, Lieutenant... Uh, what? Look, when you get back down to headquarters and, you, you know, you start the paperwork. Yeah. Do you have to mention a guy named Judson Angel? Uh, a guy named what? Judson Angel. Mm. <laughs> 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 uh, nothing, nothing. I, I, I was just thinking out loud. Yeah, yeah, that's mm. a bad practice, Phil, you know. It's kind of like only <laughs> telling a policeman half of what you know can uh, get you in trouble. Mm. Unless you're lucky. Oh, uh, give you a lift, Mr... Uh, you, Mister. you already have. Thanks, Lieutenant. And Phil, I... Good night, Judd. When Judd and the Lieutenant left, I figured I'd have a last cigarette on the terrace. Think a little about the desperate people I'd met on a night that... It started out to be quiet. I found myself not smoking, not watching the early sun brighten the valley below, and not thinking about much of anything except the overturned stone flower pot that was lying next to the splintered rail where Phoebe Hammond had tripped and taken her final plunge. It was an ordinary square flower pot with an ordinary flower in it. But the figure in relief on the side was... A lion resting on its haunches. And you know, as I looked at it, I thought it was a little more majestic than most. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy, star Gerald Moore, and was directed tonight by Cliff Howell. Script is by Mel Donnelly, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Gene Bates, D.J. Thompson, Wally Mayer, Barney Phillips, and Jerry Hausner. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. 
Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.